The Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents Where Are They Now? A professional development seminar featuring Commandant for the National War College, Rear Admiral Cedric Pringle, Corporate Director for MCOR Corporation, Bruce Grooms, Corporate Director for General Dynamics and Center for a New American Security, Admiral Cecil Haney. Associate Dean of Engineering for Catholic University of America, Vice Admiral Mel Williams, and Program Manager for Oceaneering International Incorporated, Captain Rich Bryant. Reflection of past award winners, an insightful discussion on achievements that affected their lives and careers. Without further ado, the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents Where Are They Now? Featuring Rear Admiral Cedric Pringle, Bruce Grooms, Admiral Cecil Haney, Vice Admiral Mel Williams, and Captain Rich Bryant. First, I want to thank everybody here for coming. Uh, this is the 2020 Bea Conference, and we are proud to have you all participate in this amazing panel discussion that's about to happen. Currently, right now, you're witnessing a historical moment. I want to also encourage you all to take pictures, ask the questions that you need to ask, and um, be encouraged by what you're about to hear. Um, this panel uh, that we are about to listen to is called Where Are They Now? The Centennial Seven. And I'm going to go ahead and give the mic to Rear Admiral Cedric Pringle, Commandant of the National War College. And he'll go ahead and uh, introduce everyone else. Thank you so much. Thanks. Good afternoon. So it's my distinct pleasure and honor to, uh, to be a part of this panel. Uh, as most of you can recognize from the warfare device, I am not a naval submariner. Uh, but each of these gentlemen sitting here uh, have mentored me to a certain extent, with the exception of Rich. <laughs> and that's only because he's slightly younger than I am. Uh, but the bottom line is that I am standing on the shoulders of these gentlemen. So, gentlemen, I, I just wanted to first thank you for offering this opportunity to me. Uh, and secondly, to thank you for your friendship and your mentorship. These distinguished leaders have made their mark, their mark upon the history of our nation over the course of the Naval Service and beyond. The United States Navy's submarine force was established in April of 1900. Within the first 100 years of its existence, there were seven African Americans who commanded Navy submarines. These submarine commanders became known as the Centennial Seven. The Centennial Seven included Captain Pete Zones, USS Houston, 1983. Rear Motoni Watson, USS Jacksonville, 1987. Commander Will Bundy, USS Barbell, 1998. Vice Admiral Mel Williams, USS Nebraska, 1994. Captain Joe Peterson, USS Dolphin, 1995. Admiral Cecil Haney, USS Honolulu, 1996 and Vice Admiral Bruce Grooms, USS Asheville, 1999. Through superior performance and mentoring, there will be over 10 additional African-Americans that have assumed command of a US submarine within the following 20-year period 
after the first African-Americans commanded during the initial 100-year period of the submarine force. The first member of the next generation is Captain Rich Bryant, who along with Admiral Haney, Vice Admiral Williams, Vice Admiral Grooms, and Rear Admiral Watson, compose our distinguished panel today. We'll be giving the audience a chance to ask questions shortly, so please compose those questions and be prepared to ask them when the time comes. But before I do that, I just wanted to uh, take a moment of silence for two of the members of the Centennial Seventh that have passed on to calmer seas, That's, uh, Captain Pete Zones and Dr. Will Bundy. So please join me in a moment of silence. Thank you. So since I was just informed that uh, we no longer have a uh, limit on the amount of time that we have for this panel, uh, I'm going to open it up a little bit and I'll ask that the panelists actually introduce themselves to you uh, and ask gentlemen, if you will, just uh, provide the audience with uh, what you feel to be what your main leadership trait as you go through the introduction. Initially, we talked about uh, limiting the answers to two to three minutes, but I think we can suspend with that. Uh, so uh, if you will, uh, Admiral Haney would like to start with you, sir. Well, uh, good afternoon. Uh, I'm Cecil Haney, uh, product of Washington, D.C., born and raised here, uh, D.C. public schools, but then got the opportunity to go to the United States Naval Academy, so it's good to see uh, some fellow midshipmen here, because I can remember the day it was Midshipman Haney, uh, learning a bit. Didn't know what a submarine was when I first entered the institution, but grew to learn it uh, as uh, I went through. The, uh, the most, I guess about me, uh, it's pretty the personal side, uh, family man, I have uh, three kids, three grandchildren, so, uh, I would echo, at least uh, talk a little bit about that piece uh, that was with me through the journey of being a naval officer for some commission, 38 years. So uh, what's leadership trait should I talk about? Hmm, it's hard to narrow it down to just one because as I'm sure you all uh, are experiencing, uh, that there are many leadership traits that are required, uh, but where I would put the top I would to describe it would be being a servant leader that's always learning, learning from those above you and learning from those below you and those of your peers. And I think that business of uh, humility is servant leadership, uh, very, very important, but at the same time, never forgetting that you're responsible as a leader. That's on your forehead to produce, to get it done and to, to lead your folks in a caring uh, manner. Because it's those folks you lead that get the job done, that uh, make the excellence you, uh, you subscribe for your team to, uh, to achieve. So hopefully, since I'm breaking the ice, it's the first question. <laughs> I won't talk too long so I can allow my fellow panel mates have a following discussion. Thank you, sir. Vice Admiral Williamson. Yeah, I'm Mel Williams, Jr., and I'm the son of a, uh, an enlisted guy. My dad, Mel Williams, Sr., served in the United States Navy in the submarine force for 27 years, 
uh, became a command master chief, and that was not fashionable back in the 1970s for an African-American to become a command master chief and a submariner. So I learned from him and Ma. Both of them are doing fine. They live not too far from here, Temple Hills, Maryland. So we're kind of DC area people. My bride, Donna of 42 years, will be here this evening. Uh, they really helped me to learn and understand about the importance of character. Uh, so as I uh, went into the Naval Academy uh, and was able to finish that, decided to go in the submarine force, uh, had a great time uh, with all the teams uh, that supported me throughout that journey. But uh, from a leadership perspective, like Admiral Haney, there are many traits. I think you know most of them. But for me, I always highlight character as the number one trait. I truly believe that uh, the moral and ethical character of the leader influences significantly the success or failure of that person and, or that organization. What does that mean? Moral compass. And so the character of the leader really makes a difference. And it, it includes a number of things. The scales of justice balance between humility and dogged determination. Both of them matter. And they're part of your character, how you're wired. Uh, the fact that uh, positive attitude makes a difference. Leaders, uh, what's the purpose of a leader? To receive bad news and, and to deal with it. And so the way you react, your attitude matters. Uh, the leaders make decisions as well. And so your character connects to your ability to make moral and ethical decisions. So character is number one. Number two is competence. Uh, and that's, you know that. You have to do the gig, you have to do the job, have to have the repetitions and you have to have the higher education and the knowledge combined with the reps, the experience, uh, to acquire uh, sound judgment that helps you to, you to make the right decisions that in turn leads to successful outcomes for your team. So character and competence uh, are the two uh, leadership traits uh, that continue to be important to me particularly as I serve in academia now, uh, almost seven years in academia. Uh, one of the universities I serve is the Catholic University of America here in Washington, DC, as a associate dean of engineering. And my boss is over there, Dean John Judge, who happened to be in here representing Catholic University. But everything that I just described applies not just to the Navy, but even after you go other places, it really does matter. So thanks for the opportunity to be a part of this, Admiral. Yes, sir. Look forward to your questions. Thank you. Vice Admiral Grooms. Thanks, Cedric. It's really good to be here, and um, every chance I have to share some sea stories with midshipmen never pass up that opportunity. So uh, good to be here. I'm, I was born and raised in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Um, didn't know anything about the Navy or the Naval Academy for that matter, and as fate would have it, um, a series of events happened, I was selected and, uh, and went to the Academy. I wanted to be a, a Top Gun pilot and fly the sleekest and slickest of jets. Uh, as it turned out, um, my class was the one that um, Admiral Rickover decided we need more submariners 
And so despite the fact that I made in aerospace engineering, I went up for an interview and next thing I knew I was on submarines. And as it turned out, that was the best thing that could have possibly happened to me. And it was a great experience, a great career. And so it's wonderful to take a path that was not necessarily the one I chose, but to do the best you can and and go as and William said, let's go do the gig, and things just kind of have a way of working themselves out. Now, I don't know that there is a single leadership uh, characteristic or trait that is so much more important than others. They've already shared a couple of those. I think uh, courage is vitally important, the courage to do the right thing when folks are not necessarily watching you, the courage to stand up for what's right, the courage to lead your folks when um, you're in a challenging situation and to sort of stand up and be counted when it really matters. Um, we'll talk so much more about those sorts of things, but certainly that's on my short list of necessary traits. Thank you, sir. Emma Watson. Can I ask everybody in the room to look to your right or left and shake the hand of the person that's, that's there and say hi? <laughs> you know, unlike you heard, when you started school, wherever you started, they probably said, look to your right and look to your left, and by the time you graduate, one of those people won't be there. <laughs> I promise by the time you all leave this thing, you'll all still be together. <laughs> Nobody's going to get fired uh, from this. But I see all the midshipmen and the cadets uh, sitting together, sitting here with their hands folded and kind of at attention. Let me just ask you to relax. Shake the shoulders out. <laughs> and uh, how many of you all young people have heard of... Uh, uh, the dance uh, originated in Houston, Texas called the Tighten Up. <laughs> if you've heard of the Tighten Up, raise your hand. <laughs> I met a young man from uh, Houston, a uh, young midshipman from Houston a few months ago, and he told me he hadn't heard of the Tighten Up, and he grew up in Houston. And I said, call your mother and your father and tell them that you're embarrassed. Because <laughs> that was probably the biggest dance from the 60s, 70s, and 80s that ever hit the street called the Tighten Up. So after we get through, if you look up on YouTube to Tighten Up, you'll understand why he should have been embarrassed. <laughs> I could demonstrate it, but then you all will probably walk out. <laughs> Let me just start out by saying by way of background, I'm a young kid, uh, grew up in inner city Chicago, a little community called Cabrini Green. How many of you have seen the movie Cooley High? Well, I went to Cooley. It's real. If you saw that movie, 95% of that movie which was uh, produced just about a block away from where I grew up. That's the way the neighborhood was. And when I was growing up, there was a museum, there still is, a museum in Chicago called the Museum of Science and Industry, which houses the captured submarine U-505, the German U-boat. And from the time I was about 10 years old, and I remember I was 10 because uh, the museum had just recently opened that exhibit. And I used to walk down and visit that submarine. 
A German U-boat is a very tight submarine. And I walked around that thing, and I didn't know what engineering was. I didn't know what technology was. But I used to walk through that submarine. It seemed like it was a several-hour ride to get there. It turned out it was only eight miles away. But to me, and we never had cars when we grew up. We took a bus. It was a long trip. And I walked down on that submarine, and I remember looking around and seeing all these valves and pipes and instruments, and it had a fake torpedo on it. And I'll never forget, and I used to go visit it twice a year, every year. I said to myself, how could anybody ever know enough to run something like this? And so it captured my attention, and uh, I ended up being lucky enough to go to the Naval Academy, which, by the way, doesn't make really any difference to the world when you get out of the Navy. Only 15% of officers coming into the Navy come from the Naval Academy. 85% don't. And so for those that think because they went to a service academy that they're all that, you all ain't, <laughs> we ain't. But the significance of your experience at the Naval Academy, like my experience in I graduated from there. My experience in traveling through that and visiting that submarine put an image in my mind that someday I want to be able to know as much as they knew to be able to run that submarine. Who would have known that uh, some 30 or so years later that I'd be able to make it through all the filters and the wickets uh, to actually get command of my own nuclear submarine? A little kid growing up in inner city projects in Chicago, uh, being able to command a submarine. So, you know, to me, that was a tremendous experience. And what I took with me, and when we talk about the question of, you know, what's the leadership thing that's of import to you? Uh, when I graduated from school, I went back home. Uh, my father was an alcoholic. He drank himself out of all his jobs. Uh, he worked his last job when I was 13 years old. Twice that year, we were evicted and put on the street and homeless for a while, not knowing where to go. I'll never forget the second time we got evicted. They put all our furniture out on the street in the rain. And I came home knowing what the first time was like because we didn't have any money, couldn't pay the rent. And on the way home, I saw that all this furniture was out on the street getting soaked in the rain. And this guy started laughing at me, and uh, I started to fight with him because he made me mad. And we fought to the ground, and this scar that I have on my cheek right here was from a bottle he broke and cut me on my face. And I remember not feeling an ounce of pain because I was so angry about things. But the significance of that uh, event with me from a leadership standpoint is this man, my dad, who was always there for us, pulled me home, pulled me into the corner when I came home and said, look, I want you to remember something. You may know more than I know, but you don't know what I know. And it took me some time to digest what he was trying to teach me, but the lesson was he was trying to teach me that smart is relative to the task at hand. You might have a PhD in physics, but if you didn't know where to walk in my neighborhood in Chicago, don't tell me how smart you are. 
smart as relatives. So for all of you, whether you're Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, and I know we have all of them in the room. We have four and three-star generals in the audience. Remember that those folks that a lot of people consider across the tracks, grew up in the projects, public housing, they may not know as much, some people might think, because I'm the dude that graduated from the Naval Academy and I know all that. Smart is relative to the task at hand. When I was on a mission on one of my, on my submarine for which I had command, we had a problem occur with the main seawater pump. Main seawater pump is the big pump that takes the heat out of the seawater condensers that take the exhaust from the engine and the, from our main engines and from our turbine generators. If that pump broke, uh, we might have to come off station, off mission. It was a very important mission. And one night we had a guy who, young 18-year-old machinist mate, who made the report that he didn't think the motor sounded quite right. Something just wasn't right. And he patrolled, he was on watch. He walked by the pump every 30 minutes every day. And he reported to us and we sent some electrician back with a stethoscope. We actually used those to listen to the bearings on the motor. And he said, this bearing is impending failure. And while on station, we were able to repair, replace that bearing. It was a very complicated operation. We replaced the bearing and was able to continue that mission. Now tell me who's smarter, the captain of the ship or that 18-year-old mechanic who knew how to listen to the sound of a, bur a, a whirring motor. It depends on the situation. So when you get to be that captain, when you get to be that major, that company commander, remember that those folks that joined your force in service, as smart as you are, depends on what's happening. So I hope you take, like I did, that lesson to heart that my daddy taught me. And remember, smart is relative to the task at hand. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Captain Bryant. How come you get water down at that end? <laughs> oh. <laughs> A little known fact, I was uh, Admiral Watson's age. So I'm still in the game, man. <laughs> <laughs> I was renowned for having whatever he needed in the pocket. Thanks, Admiral, for the feed. Um, uh, good afternoon. Uh, Rich Bryant, uh, Class 88 from the Naval Academy. Uh, hey, I don't want no trouble. Okay. It's been nice and calm in here until now. Uh, but um, uh, it's a pleasure to be here today. Uh, I am not one of the Centennial Seven. I am number eight. Um, uh, very proud to be number eight, uh, but I'm in a unique position that I have benefited directly from these gentlemen and Captain Pete Toms and Dr. Will Bundy, who unfortunately are not with us anymore. Um, but uh, uh, me and I would say my classmate, Roger Isom, who could not make it today, uh, were the direct benefactors of uh, just an incredible, uh, distillation of careers that rained down to us. And we had the unique 
opportunity to know these gentlemen before they started wearing stars. Um, we just did an interview and I recounted uh, back in 1988 uh, when I was a midterm in first class, like y'all are. Um, uh, it was before cell phones, it was before text messages, emails, things of this nature. So when you walk back up the company area, the way you got your message is somebody wrote it on the chalkboard and you would have to go find on the phone and call somebody. So anyway, it just so happened that the, got a note that said, hey, uh, there's a, a black commanding officer of a nuclear submarine uh, who's getting an award up in Baltimore. Uh, would you like to attend? And I'm like, well, I didn't have a girlfriend and I was like, sure, you know, I'll go up there and see what's up. It's like, it's a free meal. Uh, so I got to go up there and that's when I first met uh, Rear Admiral Tony Watson and uh, Admiral Bruce DeMars um, and he received his award at Bayes. That was my first Bayes, now 2020. And I consider it a blessing that uh, Bea is still out here connecting people uh, um, and, uh, and providing the opportunity for us to reach, reach younger people. Um, a little biographical, biographical piece, I am from the Midwest as well, St. Louis, Indianapolis. Um, I uh, went to the academy, much like Admiral Grooms, who was a company officer when I was there. Uh, thinking I was going to do something in aviation because that's what we do in the Midwest, right? Uh, but uh, I got here and academically it was a little tough that first semester. So when it came time to pick majors in the spring semester, uh, plebe year, uh, I decided I really wanted to be an engineer even though it wasn't really my strong suit, but I really wanted to be an engineer. And uh, so I went to the aerospace guys. I said, ah, sorry, dude, can't support. Yeah, and so I, I went to the systems engineering guys. Now I can't do it. And so uh, they said, hey, have you tried the marine engineers? They'll take anybody. <laughs> so I went over to the marine engineers. They're like, yeah, man, it's all good. Yeah, you can be a marine engineer. I'm like, okay, that's great. What do marine engineers do? Uh, they said, uh, well, you know, most of them go nuke. And I said, well, what's a nuke? And they said, well, you know, like carriers. And back in those days, we actually had cruisers and, and submarines. And I said, okay, that's good. I said, that's, that's good. So when it came time to pick uh, the youngster crews, um, I said, I guess I should get one of these submarine crews and see what it's all about. See if I like the whole package. So you know how they did that, right? Order of merit. So here we go. I get the submarine crews that nobody wanted, uh, the only one uh, that uh, nobody wanted, and it left right after Herndon, and it was out of Holy Lock, Scotland, and it was on a uh, fleet ballistic missile submarine, and I got over there uh, about a week before we got underway, and of course, I didn't know these things at this time, but when they got underway, they did what's called a nuclear deterrent patrol, uh, which meant I was out until two days before reform of the brigade in August. So <laughs> I spent that uh, whole summer 
underway. And it, it, it just worked out that uh, one of my classmates who was supposed to go with me had a wisdom tooth problem literally the day before underway. So I was the only midshipman on board the ship. This allowed me uh, a great opportunity uh, and access to the crew um, and access to understanding and learning things on board that ship. And I fell in love. Um, and you can probably imagine how the other three years went. There was struggle, and, um, I, but I made it through and, and got selected and uh, ended up as a submarine. I too am a family man. Um, one of my children's in the, in, the, in the crowd, Ricky, Ricky Bryant, class of 20, uh, and uh, three others. Uh, wife who uh, loves me dearly and will be married 28 years this year. That's it. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. So I'll open up with the first question, and uh, actually we'll open it up for the entire group, uh, if you don't mind. The first question is, have either of you, uh, starting with Admiral Watson and then just working your way down towards me, have either of you experienced what you would consider to be a defining moment where you had a conversation or an interaction with someone where it seemed innocent at first? But in retrospect, as you became more experienced to the rules of the game, if you will, uh, you realize that that moment was not meant for your good. And how did you deal with that challenge, Emma Watson? Were we supposed to get these questions ahead of time so we could study? <laughs> yes, sir. This, this is like a final exam uh, <laughs> uh, question. Well, yes, uh, when. I was at the Naval Academy as Deputy Commandant back uh, just after Rich graduated. Rich Bryant graduated, 89. I was uh, in an, uh, at an event out in Annapolis that had to do with Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or something. And something had occurred in D.C. that was associated with the Navy. And I was standing there talking to, there were probably 100 people at this event. We were all in a room like a gymnasium, probably twice the size of this room. And the lady was, uh, had come up and introduced herself to me and she had a newspaper in her hand and was talking about the events and then asked a couple of questions that were related to this thing that was going on. I remember exactly what was going on. But I do remember that I looked down and I saw this newspaper that she had in her hand and she turned it to an angle, which I saw that there was a tape recorder hmm. in the newspaper. And it turned out she was taping our conversation and she was a reporter. And reporters are not obliged, they're obliged to tell you if you're on the telephone that you're being recorded. There is no such obligation of somebody standing and talking with you face to face. So she was trying to record my response for the record. Fortunately, I didn't say anything wrong or bad, uh, but I remember at that moment that uh, one of the things you learn in media training, which you get if you're a senior public official, you learn the phrase that the mic is always on. When you're at a public event in uniform or doing anything, the mic is always on. So don't be surprised. If you say something bad, 
about somebody or something and somebody quotes you in the press, don't say you didn't know the mic was on because from this moment forward, you all know the mic is always on. And that was for me a defining moment that made me be more aware of that yes, sir. in Thank the future. You. Thank you. You're listening to Where Are They Now? A professional development seminar featuring Rear Admiral Cedric Pringle, Bruce Grooms, Admiral Cecil Haney, Vice Admiral Mel Williams, and Captain Rich Bryan. Brought to you by the Global Catalyst for Change, the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference, where we make the untapped potential possible. Be sure to check out our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Interesting question, I'm sure, uh, which defining moment. You know, for me, uh, probably the most experience that had an exclamation mark when it was actually as a midshipman at the Naval Academy. I re can't remember exactly which year, but I always remember being stopped in an individual much lighter than I am, I'll just put it that way, asked me, or confronted me with the fact the only reason I was there was because of a quota system. And that piece resonated with me uh, throughout the rest of my time there and beyond in terms of how many other folks will I come across that think I'm only there because of a quota system. That's all I have. Thank you, sir. Emma Williams? I just remember uh, being called chief chief uh, a lot, you know, walking on the pier. Hey, chief, how you doing? And, you know, I'm standing, you know, I'm wearing the devices of a commanding officer of a nuclear submarine. And it's just because many of us were the only ones that looked like us. And so you'd walk down there and they'd assume you're a chief petty officer, which is a good thing because my dad was a chief. But at the time, I happened to be skipper. But I, I just thought about that. And why is that in the year, whatever, fill in the blank, 2000, 1990, why is that? And so it just made me think about perceptions and the fact that I had to remain focused with my team to get to a better place for everyone. I guess the other thing I'll say is a good thing that happened when Ensign Williams reported to the first submarine, it was in Groton, Connecticut, and I reported with my Naval Academy classmate. Uh, and we both reported on board and it was fine. But for whatever reason, they gave me sort of these assignments that were pretty challenging. I guess they, they thought I could handle it. So I was the auxiliaries officer, the DCA damage control assistant and auxiliaries. And that was fine. So I'm Incident Williams is on board until I met my division. And I went in there and of course, I'm the only one that looks like me. But then I looked carefully in their submarine coveralls they, they had uh, the Confederate flag on their uh, coveralls. You could do that because you're submerged and you just kind of wear what you want to. So Confederate flag, and back then, this is uh, around 1980, okay? And you could wear beards, so they were wearing beards, Confederate flag, big uh, tobacco chew. And I remember going into the diesel room where the auxiliaries people are, 
and they looked at me and they kind of gave me a hard time. But the good news, the chief petty officer came next to me. Ensign Williams is one of us. Don't mess with Ensign Williams. And after that, this Confederate, you know, chew the, it and they started, we started working as a team. And so I guess the good thing is I had a chief petty officer stand up for me at a time when I really needed it early in my career. And I really appreciated that. And there are all kinds of stories like that that exist, but we ought to talk about those positive things as well. Yes, sir. Hamilton. Thank you. I also remember an event that happened pretty early on. In my case, it was one of those where I thought it was very innocent, and it turned out to not be so. And it's related to uh, fitness reports. And so for as long as you're in the service, you'll get a fitness report that will be the hard copy of your performance as it compares to other folks. And that will be the piece of paper that stands uh, whenever you're being considered for a future opportunity. So my very first fitness report on my very first boat, the captain calls me in and shows me the report and says some very, very flattering words. And so there were you know, lots, of, lots of A's, you know, a B or so. As, by the way, when I look around and see all these stars, you know, you guys probably didn't experience any bees. But on my, uh, <laughs> on my fitness report, it looked good from what I had experienced as a midshipman. And the commanding officer was saying all these great words, so I was really happy to receive that report. Well, on a submarine, you have these staterooms where there are three of you that sleep in one little stateroom together. So as fate would have it, I was looking for something in the, one of the lockers. And one of my uh, shipmates, he had stuffed his fitness report in that locker. And I just happened to be curious and grabbed it and looked at it. And to my surprise, there was a world of difference between what the commanding officer said about rooms versus what he said about this other guy. And so I thought that I was walking on water and I was the best thing since sliced bread. And the truth of the matter was, despite the fact that the CEO said those words to me, he did not feel that way at all. And so from that point forward, you know, it was still, that was his evaluation of my performance but it highlighted to me some really important lessons about how you do your job and how people perceive you doing your job. And frankly, I could have been fat, dumb, and happy at this other level, but it opened my eyes to something that made a difference. And so working much harder, recognizing that um, things aren't always what they seem and words, specific words have meanings. It made all the difference in the world is in when I had opportunities to write fitness reports for folks I cared about, and when I had the opportunity to go to boards and view those of other folks, it um, certainly made me much more effective on a personal level and 
on uh, being able to evaluate what folks were really saying about the people in other positions. Thank you, sir. Um, I think uh, once again, as being the next generation, um, I'm put in a little bit of a different situation than my predecessors uh, in that uh, you think about from a timing perspective, I'm class of, of your group 88, um, uh, Abel Brooms is the closest to me, he's eight years my senior and then come Apple Haney and Apple Williams who are 10 years my senior, so a decade. Um, and in that decade, I would say some of the things that they encountered had changed, uh, attitudes had changed. Uh, while it's still a relatively small number, certainly more black submarine officers than when Captain Toms and Admiral Watson first hit the pier. Um, I'll relate to you a story of uh, when I was in command, and it actually wasn't so much me, but it was actually my wife, and I don't know, Ricky, if you even remember this, probably not. But, uh, you know, if you go to a military base, they usually have reserve parking uh, for commanding officers, flag officers, senior enlisted, things of that nature. And uh, when I was in command of USS Miami, we were in Groton, Connecticut, so we were at that submarine base. Um, so um, my wife was going to the commissary. She had all four kids, uh, and she was pulling into a space reserved for commanding officers. And there was a lady who ran out to stop her from pulling into the space and shooing her off like, no, 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 you're making a mistake. You're pulling into the wrong parking spot. Um, and that was 2007. So um, uh, just goes to show you, despite uh, quite a bit of success, success by that time of a number of black submariners, even within the community itself, it was still rare enough that someone could actually perceive that a black person pulling into a commanding officer slot at the naval commissary was a mistake. That's it. Well, thank you all for those uh, very personal lessons, and I think we all can learn from them. And at this point, I would certainly like to open it up for questions from the audience. So if you will, uh, just stand up and take the mic, state your name, where you're from, uh, and then uh, direct your question to a specific panelist or call it a jump ball, whichever works for you. Remember, the mic is always on. <laughs> the reason they use the mic because this is being recorded for posterity, so. Right. No question. Good afternoon, gentlemen. My name is um, Michigan First Class Devon Doss. I, too, am from Chicago, Illinois. Um, the question I have for you, gentlemen, is why do you feel that the submarine community get such a bad representation from African-American students. So to give a um, precursor, when I got to the academy, all I heard was never go subs, probably the worst community you can go into. And it wasn't just, you know, from my peers, but from my um, counterparts saying, you know, oh, I would never do subs, never do. Why do you think the submarine community gets such a bad representation? Well, I think it's a good question. It's, it's, 
is wrong, but it's a good question. <laughs> if you ever watch Saturday Night Live, Black Jeopardy, where the guy says, you're wrong, but uh, I think everybody thinks their community is the best community. Uh, I always you know, talk about Army and West Point folks, and I think, why would anybody want to jump out of airplanes and slop around in the mud and foxholes and stuff like that. But they do, and they do it really well. And I'm glad we got folks that want to do that because that needs to be done. I'm glad we have Marines that want to land first. And I'm glad we have surface sailors that love uh, state five seas and being out there in that water. And I'm glad we have people who like to fly jets, et cetera. Uh, what we do is a little different. Uh, and people, a lot of people have a real challenge thinking about closing the hatch and going down on a big black pipe that goes underwater and stays underway for 65, 70 days at a time sometimes. And there's also this challenge of people think the folks that get selected to do that are kind of weird because they all have to be nuclear physicists, et cetera, and that all they do is study all night after they work. They go to the library and study all night till midnight. And I never stayed past the hour at 10 o'clock at the library uh, at night after work. But there's, uh, there's some real strong competencies required for submariners. Remember, smart is relative. But one of the things that the naval reactors, the group that selects you, uh, looks at, the biggest thing they look at, and Admiral Haney was part of that. Uh, by the way, those of you who don't know, Admiral Haney was a four-star Admiral, combatant commander. Mel Williams, not only a three-star Admiral and commander of the U.S. Atlantic Fleet, but was also a Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Department of Energy and is now the Dean of Engineering of a school. Uh, Admiral Grooms was the uh, top scorer in basketball in the state of Ohio and probably still is. Uh, he was a basketball phenom as well as being Commandant of the Naval Academy, the first African-American Commandant of the Naval Academy. And Rich Bryant and all the things that he's talking with you about is not only delivered one midshipman soon to graduate, Ricky, to graduate from the Naval Academy, but his other uh, mid son is at NAPS right now, getting ready to graduate, and his battalion commander up there, getting ready to do stuff, and he's now an executive in the world of technology. Yep. The, these folks all decided to go in the submarines and learn a lot about the technology that supports it, but the leadership requirements in that tube that gets underway underwater for 65, 70 days, it's the same kind of leadership requirements required of a uh, tank commander, you know, to learn what the strengths and the weaknesses of your folks are and to help shore them up. And one of the great things about the Naval Academy, biggest difference, is that you live for four years, it's all the service academies, you live for four years in a leadership laboratory where you get to make mistakes, screw up, and you learn from it before you graduate. Uh, for those that listen to those that, like you said, say that's the worst community, it's actually the best community. It demands of you more in terms of technical knowledge, 
and competence to do your job and knowing how that pump and that bearing, how that stethoscope works on that bearing. You know, a lot of you complain still probably about having to take electrical engineering in your fourth or third year. You will have to teach electrical engineering to the people that work for you. So it's really important that you learn what electrical, what uh, uh, electricity and electromagnetism is all about. James Clerk Maxwell of the 1860s, who defined electromagnetism, discovered it, cataloged it. You need to know why, how he discovered that so that you can imbue upon your young sailors the importance of knowing why an electrical generator works the way it does. Because when you're underway, underwater, and it breaks, there's no Home Depot. <laughs> you got to fix it. So we're very proud about, you know, what we do. And we'd invite you to be there. And, you know, I would add uh, one thing to this is, uh, you know, you don't know what you don't know. I mean, I wasn't excited about submarines when I was the first year at the Naval Academy. It wasn't until about the third year that the idea went grew on me. You know, I grew up in an era where the only real military show was combat. So I really had more affiliation to Marine Corps, uh, you know, rifles and that kind of thing. As I grew to learn more about that, uh, piece and I would say even at the Naval Academy there is a bit of mystique there because a lot of the operations uh, submarines do are so highly classified that we don't share enough of the stories of their value to the national security of the United States. Most of the things in the military we tend to show value on is where we've been in shooting and combat and those kind of things. But I tell you uh, Mel Smith who's uh, one row second row there, for example, I was in command of one of our most uh, sophisticated submarines. And you won't hear much about that submarine, and that's a good thing for the missions that it, that it does. So it's breaking the ice to some of that that you don't know uh, that is frequently talked about in the tribes that we are in or exposed to. And I would say what's neat about the academies and some of our other ROTC programs, et cetera, is they give us that exposure to what else is out there and what you can do. So those summer cruises and those kind of things, uh, hopefully you get experience to get rid of that myth, that myth-busting piece uh, in terms of what these outfits, whatever that community is about, and you get rid of the, that rumor stuff. And you know at the Academy, lots of rumors I remember from my day there, and many of which weren't worth their salt. And, uh, that's a great example of one. I think Tony Watson gave you a great illustration. So we'll transition to the second question. Thank you, gentlemen. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Um, my name is Mission Before Class um, Nick Soler, uh, played with the Naval Academy. Uh, my question for you is um, I have a, a pretty like strong interest in the submarine community. Of course, I've never actually been in a submarine, so can't say until I, I get in there. But you guys have all, um, you men have all stayed um, in the submarine force to command at sea, and I'm wondering, like, what what kept you the what kept you in the navy? What kept you to like keep pushing through to get to like that stage? So, sorry, my question. Well, I'll start. Good question. Thanks. Uh, two generation answer. My dad uh, enlisted in the navy 1951. 
uh, sent him off to destroyers, aircraft carriers. Uh, he made it to the level of E-5 petty officer, uh, stayed there for 10 years as an E-5. We had four kids in my family, so mom raised all four of us on E-5 pay. Uh, but then he was so bold as to ask to transition to the submarine force. So he transitioned to the submarine force, and even though he was the only person that looked like he did, uh, they embraced him as another asset on the ship. And so he qualified as a second-class petty officer, what's called chief of the watch. He was the editor of the, of the ship's newspaper, etc. He eventually made chief petty officer quickly while in the submarine force, was handpicked to serve the President of the United States, both Johnson and Nixon, and then for eight years served the Secretary of the Navy and the Chief of Naval Operations at the Pentagon as a Master Chief, the number one uh, mess management specialist or steward uh, in the Navy. All that was enabled by his transition to the submarine force. I kind of saw that. And so when I applied, you know, they said I wasn't smart enough to go to the academy, enlisted, finally made it, went to the submarine force. But I told you the story about the chief that stood up for me when I was an ensign. And I saw that throughout my career. And so this whole perception about the submarine force, my father's generation, my generation, I saw opportunity. And so the challenge was for me to prepare myself for opportunities because they were laid out there. There, there weren't too many you know, opportunities for me not to succeed because they were presented. Maybe I was uh, you know, different, but I will tell you that as you pursue the submarine force, as you cons consider the military in general, it's also a bigger than self kind of thing. Uh, you, ha you have to want to do, do this in the military. But for the submarine force, you have to volunteer, but know that in general, you know, you're going to be presented with opportunities to excel, and it's on me to actually make sure I was ready to do it. To just add a little bit to um, whatever Williams mentioned, I think the simple answer for me why I stayed was because I really enjoyed what we did. You know, I started out sort of during the Cold War period, and so we got to do some some really exciting missions and go to some places that you only read about in books. But I think the second part of that was that I had the opportunity to work with some of the absolute best and brightest folks that I could possibly ever work with. And so you have this important mission, you have these wonderful people, and when you have those things converge, then it's wonderful. To the, to the question about the reputation of the submarine force and those sort of things. You know, I always find it interesting that folks who have never spent any real time doing that thing are the ones who are most vocal about how bad it is. And, and I'll tell you one thing that I know for sure, and uh, every one of my friends that graduated and wanted to do something important and real, whether it was in the submarine community, the aviation, surface, whatever, if you're going to be successful, you're going to work hard. You know, my, my roommate, when we went off to our first ships and he was a surface guy and I was a submarine guy, uh, it was rare that he got home any earlier than I did. He was working his butt off the same way and, and frankly, he got out of the Navy, you know, five years in one day. 
And so, you know, my paycheck was a whole heck of a lot bigger than his, but he was working just as hard. But we certainly, none of us did it for the pay. But I'll tell you what, as you sort of look at your lives, you know, you sort of think about what's in front of me in the near term, the two years, three years, five years. But to some degree, you really do have to spend some time with the long view. And the long view is if you take the time to work at something that's challenging and you become good at it, there's a whole lot more doors that open up for you down the road than if you take the easy, fun task and sort of slide your way through. So give yourself the opportunity to do the very best, to have the biggest chance to do something special, but it starts with being committed to working hard. And you do have to work hard, no doubt about it. You have to work hard, but you have to work hard at anything that's worth accomplishing. Rich, anything there? No. Thank you, gentlemen. Okay, we have time for uh, one more question. Go right ahead. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I'm Nolan Kripe. I'm from Carlinville, Illinois, and um, first class midshipman at the at the Naval Academy. Um, throughout my time and my uh, experience through the leadership curriculum at the Naval Academy, um, the word stewardship gets brought up a lot in class. Uh, not just you know stewardship meaning not just leaving, um, not just making things better for your generation, but making them better for the generations to come. Obviously, gentlemen, like you, you all are fantastic. You guys are masters at stewardship. Um, do you have any clues of how or any like intents of how you made it better for people like Captain Bryant and, and uh, others to um, benefit from, from your work? <laughs> Put it on you well, already. Um, Ricky knows this uh, this saying. Um, I've, I've had it as long as he's always been alive, and it's something that I kind of distilled uh, over time. But I would say the first time I kind of came to this conclusion was when I was a company officer stationed at the Naval Academy, and the saying goes like this. Excellence is hard for a reason. It challenges men to leave that which is comfortable, but you have to want it. You have to be concerned with the legacy. Okay, so what does that mean? Um, I think, you know, there was a question about why did you stay in the submarine force? Why did you go submarines? Um, there is, and it's not for everyone, but there, there is something that is very appealing to the history of the submarine force and what it has done to protect this country over a century. Uh, there is a great deal about what we do, and I, I brought this up in a separate interview, that while the technology has changed over the years, most certainly, there are certain fundamental tenets about how you operate a ship in such an adverse environment safely and actually accomplish the mission. And you build pride on that. You work with the best people and things of that nature. So there's something intrinsic about legacy that's built in there. Not just because we're all black guys, but because we're part of something that's a little bit bigger than what we are by ourselves. And so you look at that is that worrying about what the count is between the Army-Navy football game 
Is it, <laughs> you know, Jim, uh, is it about, uh, you know, thinking about your personal legacy? If you are a wrestler and your team continues to succeed after you leave, does that matter to you? There is something about the stewardship part of that, which requires you not only to set the example, but it requires you to take care of that example, take care of it. And it's not just a personal thing, but it's a community thing. I hope that kind of helps broaden it a little bit for you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And with that, uh, if gentlemen, if you may, uh, just closing remarks, uh, we'll, we'll freeform this. Just uh, for me, uh, just remember to take care of the most junior amongst you. Uh, when you get to your ship, submarine, company command, or wherever you go, one of the things you're going to have to do is get qualified to do whatever you do next, to become competent. If you pay respect and attention to the most junior amongst you, they'll take care of your getting qualified. If you don't, they won't. Remember, smart is relative to the task at hand. I'll just leave you with one, two things. One, how proud I am of you all that are in uniform today and the service you will continue to provide your country. Uh, I would just say the business of uh, learning uh, and thinking about what are you weakest at from professional competency? Because if you're the officer of the deck and you're chartered with uh, a particular portion of a mission, it, there are some particular skill sets that are on you. You're backed up by a team, so when that petty officer says, you might want to consider this or that, you've got to make a decision. Is your initial thoughts wrong or right? And that requires some technical and tactical push-ups so that you can be also a real part of the team and not just a receiver uh, in that regard. And that requires a continual learning uh, process. So uh, I would just leave you with that. Don't stop learning and then assess and think about what you're weakest at and work on that. Sometimes we like to work on what we're best at and we'll leave those weaknesses, and maybe nobody will notice. But eventually, they come back if, if you haven't worked on them at a period when you least expect it. So work on the weak areas and make those fun, and not just you hate that sort of thing. I would just say that uh, some folks believe that the amount of money you have means everything. Uh, for me and my family, it's been more about uh, acquiring peace of mind. Uh, peace of mind, uh, you sleep well at night, uh, free of fear, anger, guilt, worry, doubt. Uh, and so a part of peace of mind, I'll leave you with a visual, is uh, a Venn diagram, three circles, you know, the Mickey Mouse intersect in the middle. One circle is education and I agree with Admiral Haney, continual learning. It's gonna be more important in the future with the, the uh, evolution
evolution of artificial intelligence, machine learning, cyber, all that stuff, we're going to have to be a little bit more educated uh, as we go forward. So that's one circle, education. The other is careers, be it in the military or in academia or whatever. And then the third circle is passion. And so for me, I've always tried to listen to the wisdom of others, read a lot, acquire more education, have a job or career that is aligned with my education and my passion. And so peace of mind is that middle area. And so when I come home from Catholic University and I see Donna, she wonders, well, why am I smiling? <laughs> It's because I feel pretty good about what I'm doing. And because of that, that uh, circle arrangement, Venn diagram, I found a place where life is good. And so think about that, those circles and think about what is peace of mind for you. Is it a lot of money or is it something else? And you'll find that even after you get out of the military and beyond, and your second career and your third career, there's, there should be an alignment of those things to make sure that you feel good, you're not staying up all night because you're sweating and worrying about something. So I just leave you with that image and that thought. I think as we, uh, as we grow older and sort of look back on what we did and what we accomplished, one of the things that certainly for me that matters most is so what was the impact that I had on other folks? Not so much what I did, but what is the legacy? And that's why this Centennial 7 and Next Generation is so important, because there is this legacy that we hope will go on and go on. But how you affect people really does matter. And I, and I think, um, you know, Maya Angelou kind of said it best when she said, uh, people don't always remember what you said, and they don't always remember what you did, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. And so our job, as when we were in command and doing things, was to influence people so that the next generation felt that they could carry on that legacy and move forward. And so that's kind of where we are in our lives now. It's all about having the opportunity to continue to influence the folks that'll carry our great country forward and do things that are very special. Um, when I was in command, um, um, when you're in command, you have a command vision. And, and the first one, uh, first item in my command vision was relationships are paramount. They are the foundation upon which our service is built. Um, relationships. If you were to ask someone, what is one of the biggest assets of Rich Bryan? They would say, he knows everybody. <laughs> it's not true. But I, I know a lot of people. Um, I, and I'm genuinely, genuinely interested in people. It's one of my strengths. Um, one of the things, we didn't really talk about networking, but you're at an event that is prime for networking. What I, what I recommend that you do, uh, talk to people who have apparently no ability to help you do whatever you think it is you want to do. 
You will be amazed at what you will learn. And generally you'll learn that they actually can do something for you. <laughs> Just not apparent to you. Uh, and it'll probably be down, down the road a piece. So I, I say take advantage of this opportunity that you're gonna have here to meet folks from other schools, other services, uh, talk to people like us who are out of the service now, talk to people who have never been in the service, and get some perspective uh, about what it is that you're doing and what you think it is that you want to do going forward. And I wish you the best of luck. Well, let's give the panel a hand. Gentlemen, this concludes this historic panel, but I just want to personally say thank you again for your leadership. Thank you for your service. May God continue to bless you, your families, and every single thing that you do. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Where Are They Now? A professional development seminar featuring Commandant for the National War College, Rear Admiral Cedric Pringle. Corporate Director for MCOR Corporation, Bruce Grooms. Corporate Director for General Dynamics and Center for a New American Security, Admiral Cecil Haney. Associate Dean of Engineering for Catholic University of America, Vice Admiral Mel Williams. And Program Manager for Oceaneering International Incorporated, Captain Rich Bryan. If you have enjoyed this presentation, be sure to attend the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference. For more information on how you, your company, or organization can take part, visit www.baya.org. For college students, contact us at 410-244-7101.